Okay, let's see if we can uh, reconvene here and do justice to the time. I had uh, a lot of good comments and discussion in the break, and I won't remember all of them. But I did have a couple that I did at least write down so that I did, or were written down for me, I should say. So let me address those because they kind of tie into some of the things that were, were talked about last hour. This one has to do with giving, and I'll just read the question. Do you think Scripture teaches that it is safe to err on the side of mercy, based on James 2, uh, verse 8 and following, when deciding to be benevolent or not? My answer to that would be yes. I think if, if, if we've got an issue leaning on the side of, of mercy or generosity is probably always going to be better than leaning on the side of, of frugality. My point was we simply have to make decisions. Money is like time. There's limits to it. If it was unlimited, we just it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, and you've heard this saying, but I think there's some validity to it. Uh, you'd rather give to somebody that maybe wasn't deserving than fail to give to somebody that was really needy. And I, th I think there's some real wisdom in that. Uh, and this idea of giving is not just a congregational thing. Sometimes it's a family thing, and it's not uncommon for the husband and wife to have slightly different angles on this because one of them's going to be a more giving person and the other one's going to be a more frugal person. And I'll let you decide for yourselves which is me and which is Donna. But it's, it's, it's pretty obvious, I imagine, to most of you. But that's, that's okay. Maybe out of that comes a balance. Okay? The other question was along that line. Uh, so it, they asked me to comment on the difference of benevolence when it's congregational funds versus personal funds. And I do believe there is a difference. I think when it's personal funds, it seems to me we have much more discretion in how we do that uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when it's your personal funds, you don't have to consult other people's thoughts about it, so that makes it more, gives you more leeway. But I think there are areas of benevolence that are appropriate for a person that wouldn't be appropriate for a congregation. Uh, for instance, if you choose to give to the American Heart Association or the American Cancer Association or Goodwill as an individual or as a family, I think that's, that's fine. It might even be good or your favorite charity. For me, congregational funds have specific uses. They're for benevolence uh, of the needy, they're for growth of the church, and they're for spreading of the word. And so there are appropriate things to give our personal funds for that might not or would not, in my opinion, be appropriate for us to use congregational funds for. There are some congregations that don't feel like it's appropriate to use church funds really even for benevolence, and so they do it on a private basis. That's not my particular read of scriptures, but I respect congregations that have that feeling, and to me, I guess the bottom line is that when we can, we help those that are in need. That's the main thing. But in Galatians 6, it says, Do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. I take the phrase all men to be, it's appropriate to even use congregational funds for that, if that's the decision that our leaders and our congregations make. Let's move on just because uh, the clock is moving on. 
And I want I promised or I told you we would touch on these two and then depending upon time following that we'll decide uh, how much more uh, more things we can cover. Let me deal with property rights. Do we as Christians have the right to own property? Well, our constitution or our government says we do. And probably everybody here of an adult age owns property. Because property is not just real estate. It could be a car. It could be things. And I don't know that anybody here probably doesn't own property. I think there are three central principles regarding property rights for God's children. And let me share them with you. Number one, and I touched on this in the first hour. In Genesis chapter 20 verse 15 says, Thou shalt not steal. It is a moral and a spiritual prohibition against theft. But if there is no ownership of property, then how could thievery be wrong? If you take something from me and I don't own it, I, I question whether you've stolen it from me. You may have taken it from me, but you haven't stolen it from me. Principle number two, the whole world belongs to God. Psalms 24 and 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it the world, and those who dwell in it. God owns everything, which again causes me to ask, well then, do I own anything if God owns it? Well, I think the proper way to look at this is, is we are temporary tenants of God's property, but I don't think that excludes ownership, because then I don't know what to do with thou shalt not steal. David said in First Chronicles 29 and 15, we are but sojourners before you, tenants as all our fathers were, our days on earth are like a shadow. And several times in scriptures we're called pilgrims, sojourners. David simply expressing the idea that, that he's a sojourner and a tenant. Therefore my conclusion is that men are stewards of God's property and we are accountable to God for the use of that property, be it real estate or assets. But theft implies some form of rightful ownership, or I don't really know what thievery is. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, Leviticus 19, 11, uh, Matthew 19 and 18, all talk about stealing and how it's wrong and other passages to do. So I, I kind of like the phrase, rather than the right of ownership, we have the right of belongingship or belongship. These things belong to us kind of as tenants, but they are still ours in a, in a rightful sense. In Leviticus 19.13, the Lord says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, and the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night. Well, that is an implication that we have rights to our wages, because it's wrong to defraud someone and not pay them their rightful wages. So, I think if you work, you have a right to your wages, according to, according to Scripture. I'm not going to read these, but in Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 15, probably is, is, is a passage that most directly addresses property relationships. And it says that violation of property ownership is a crime. And it talks in the first few verses about restitution for stealing. This would go along with Jeannie's comment, maybe about Zacchaeus. Uh, the killing of an ox, restitution for damage to a field, uh, even talks about if somebody 
has you look after their field and you lose it while they're while you're caretaking for it, there, there, there is a penalty. So we have to discern that if theft is a crime by logical necessity, there must be a right to property. So it seems to me that that is true. But the Christian view of ownership has to begin with God being the ultimate owner of it all. Because God owns it all. After you and I are gone, if the world remains, these trees will be here. The land where you live will be here. The house you live in may not be here because houses don't last very long once somebody no longer lives in them. But there is a conflict here. Man has property rights, but yet God owns it all. Well, I think part of the problem there is, is a misinterpreting, or a, it's, it's erroneous to say that there are no property rights, but it's clearly incorrect by many suggestions against theft and the requirement for restitution. One person equated Christian rights to kind of like leasing. You don't actually own it because God owns it all, but you're in charge of it as a steward of it, and nobody else has the right to come into it or take it away from you. If you're leasing a house or you're renting an apartment, you don't own it, but it's yours, and nobody else has the right to come in or take it without your permission. And I think that's probably not too bad of a way for us to begin to look at, at it in that, in that sense. I'm sorry? For what? He said, can you use or do you have authority over that property? Yeah, I think you have authority over that property with the still understanding that ultimately God is the owner of it. But we have authority over it, yes. Yeah, he asked me a question which in my feeble brain I already forgot. Or he made a comment. He didn't ask me a question. Along the lines, is authority and rights the same thing? Well, they are to some extent, but I don't think authority is the same as inalienable rights because inalienable rights is something you can't lose. Authority is something that can be taken away from you. And many of the times that we use Christian rights, not the Christian right, but we talk about Christians having rights, I personally believe a better phraseology many times is Christians have privileges. But we can lose those privileges. We, do we have the right to heaven? Well, we have a privilege to go to heaven, but we can lose that if our conduct is not appropriate. Whereas an inalienable right is something that, that I, I don't know that I can lose by definition. Uh, let's get the mics rolling here if we don't mind, Ace. Because I, I won't be able to hear and I'll miss... Uh, Fred over here. Uh, yes, John. I was just thinking about the um, com uh, commandment for they were not to remove the original landmarks. I would think that would be a declination of uh, property rights. Okay. I hope you could all hear that. The Old Testament reference to not removing landmarks would be a, a reference to ownership. Yes, it would. But the year of Jubilee would be a reference to God's in charge of it all, too. So we're back, we're back to being uh, land tenants, if you will. We have the rights of ownership, maybe without uh, really spiritual ownership of what God, God is the ultimate owner of it. Uh, Kimber? I had two scriptures, uh, John 1 and 12. This is the ESV wording, which I think is a little different. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And then the other one is 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, about eating meat. And it uses that same phrase, take care of this right of yours, that it does not somehow become a stumbling block. So with rights come responsibility. Absolutely. With rights come responsibility. She was reading from the ESV, which I find to be a, a pretty good translation. Sometimes the word that's translated rights is also translated power. But again, you have to go back and look in context. I prefer the terminology that, that those are our privileges. Because they're, or at least they're not inalienable rights because they, we can forfeit them. But if we're faithful, God's going to keep his promise. So in that sense, it then is a, is, is a right. But it's not a right in the sense that we deserve it. It's only that we have it because of the mercy of God. Uh, yeah, Dan? Um, yeah, I was just uh, looking at the passage in Acts, the fifth chapter, with when we talk about Ananias and Sapphira, and the uh, alluded to in there is the property right that, and the ownership that they had of land. Yes. And in the third verse in particular, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So that alludes to the concept of, of they had the right to own that property and that land. And the, they had the right to own he, He's reverencing Ananias and Sapphira, if you couldn't hear it. And when they went to... They had the right to the land, they had the right to do with the proceeds as they chose to, but it was their lying about it that got them in trouble. But it, it is a classic passage on ownership, belongingship, I guess, as we're using the term. As we're using the term. And I don't want to get semantical with you. I, I, I don't have a problem with ownership. It just, we need to remember that, that God's the real owner of everything. Uh, are we done? And I don't take that as I hope we are. I just... Okay. Okay. Huh. I don't know. 24 one. Your notes are better than mine, which is no surprise. No surprise. Just one, uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just it's kind of an interesting thought process. If somebody gives a, someone money, and you don't think that was appropriate, and you go take it back from them, is that appropriate? Well, I would say no, because if we give somebody something, it's theirs. And to take it back without their consent, even if we really disagree with it, is, uh, so to me, that's kind of reverse stealing or, or stealing. But it, it just the thought occurred to me that I don't know that I've ever seen that happen. But uh, Now, that doesn't apply to your children. You just take anything you want from them. No, it probably does apply to our children. Okay. Anybody else on, on property rights? I didn't expect a lot of disagreement, but I do think it's, uh, 
It is a right that we have. It is a right that we have. Tom, and then we'll move on maybe. Uh, I think it's really an important subject. And on the surface, it seems like it's kind of obvious that we own things. I wonder if the influence of Karl Marx uh, and his idea of government, that the government should own everything, saying that the people own everything, but it's, it is, a, I think, an important conflict there, whether the government owns things or whether we own things and are responsible for how we use them. Yeah. I do think that Tom makes a good point. It is important, and this is not a discussion on politics, but our country is moving in a socialistic direction. There may be some good ramifications of that in terms of caring for the needy, but there are some serious, serious repercussions of that in terms of dependency and, and not working and in terms of uh, who owns it controls it. And uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna drift into politics, and that's not anywhere I want to go in the pulpit. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the right to bear arms. Our Constitution gives us the right to bear arms without any any question. Do we as Christians have the right to bear arms? And the underlying question really is the issue of, of self-defense. Do we have the right to defend ourselves? Well, I think we do have the right to defend ourselves, and I'll give you some passages, but that's one of the reasons I spent some time in Matthew 5 to talk about that was a slap of insult, not a slap of pugilism. He wasn't saying, let somebody, let somebody kill you. Psalms 144 and 1, David says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Now, there's lots of passages we could look at. I'm just going to give you some of them. And I understand Old Testament passages don't automatically transfer. But in Exodus 22 and 2, it says, If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into your house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. Well, it seems to me pretty clear there that God is giving the concept of self-defense, and, and that would include the right to bear arms, uh, to protect one's property, to protect one's life, and to protect one's family. I think even Jesus sanctioned the use of weapons for self-defense. Now, not everybody agrees with that statement, and there's probably some here that might not agree with that, but even in the passage, you remember when Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the ear, and Jesus kind of rebukes Peter, and he puts the ear back on. Well, he doesn't kind of rebuke him, he does rebuke him. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter to do with his sword? Put it back in. Jesus didn't take his sword away from him. If Jesus didn't want his disciples to ever use swords, it would seem to me he would have said, Peter, give me your sword. How many times have I told you not to have a sword? And he didn't. He used it inappropriately, and Jesus rebuked the inappropriate use of it, but he didn't rebuke the carrying of it. In fact, there's a passage where Jesus says, go and sell so that you can have a sword. Well, Jesus isn't uh, proclamating a, an insurgence, a revolt, or an armed rebellion. 
But so why would they carry it? Well, okay, to chop down grapes off of a vine, maybe. But I think that's a little silly. There is the area of self-defense. There are probably a lot of gun owners that I'm looking at. I'm not one of them. But it's not because I don't believe. It's not because I think it's wrong. I just think it's more likely I'll hurt myself than the thief. And I don't mean that to be funny. I don't have one in the house because I, to me it's more probable something bad will happen because I have it than something good. But others of you have them and are very skilled in them, that's fine. Uh, as long as it's used for the proper, the proper use. Uh, and used in the proper way. And I'm not talking about recreational hunting. That's, that's quite a, or, or, or eating hunting. That's a different use of it that I, I obviously don't have a problem problem with. Now, that's interesting. Uh, that passage I gave you in Exodus 22 and 2, let me, let me read just a little bit further. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, that person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. That's what I read to you just a minute ago, but it goes on. But if it happens in daylight, the one who killed the thief is guilty of murder. A distinction is made between killing someone at night and killing them in the daytime. I don't know that I can tell you all of the reasons for that, but it seems to me like the passage may be indicating to us in the daytime you've got a chance to see what's going on and you ought to be more discerning and more careful in the use of it. Whereas at night you obviously can't see uh, and it it may it may make it makes a difference, but it, to me it seems that Scripture is quite clear. Obviously, the Christians are to be peacemakers, but we are also to be stewards of the things that that we that we own. You might remember in Nehemiah chapter four, verses sixteen and eighteen, when they're rebuilding the wall, how they have to do that. They have my words. They've got a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. So they can protect themselves while they work. Now I don't know quite how that would work. Because it would certainly be a little less productive. But there is the concept there of, of being able to protect ourselves. And I think we men as, as heads of our homes uh, have, a, have a right to do that. Uh, there are other ways to do that but having guns. You can get, you can get a dog. You can get security system. Whatever you, you, you want to do. But uh, there are different ways uh, of doing that. Now, in, in, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when Noah, after the flood, we have that classic passage that we often use as legitimacy for capital punishment, which I think is right. It says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by a man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. But that was not a statement made to a, a nation. It was not a, a statement made to a law enforcement agency. It was a statement that clearly indicates that human life is precious and God mandates the ultimate penalty for taking it in an irresponsible way. It often leads us to discussions about Christians serving in war. Uh, I can give you my academic answer, uh, which I will do now. I think that that is oftentimes appropriate because war is often a national form of self-defense. But are all wars morally acts of self-defense? I'm sure they're not. So should a Christian serve in a war that he knows is morally inappropriate? 
Well, I'm just glad I never had to make that call personally, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I think the cynical part of me says it's almost impossible for us to really know what's going on. All we know is what we read in the, in the newspaper or on the news or a politician tells us. And there's shreds of truth in that and there's shreds of malarkey in that. So I find myself in a position of really not knowing. I grew up during the Vietnam War. And I don't know whether that was a, an appropriate war or not. I still don't know because I go on what people tell me and I go on what historians write and historians aren't terribly accurate. Maybe that's why I'm not enamored by them. They're kind of the best we got, but they're telling the story from their side. But there, I'm sure, have been wars that have been inappropriate. I don't condemn a person if they've served in that war when they really didn't have the information available to make, a, to make a right judgment. I will respect someone that declines if there is reason to feel that it's a, an immoral war or not a war of self-defense. You know, World War II was kind of easy. Once Pearl Harbor happened, we were obviously defending ourselves because we're, we're not used to our land being attacked. We're used to going over into other people's lands. And a lot of wars have been economic. And that's probably not the right reason to have a war. But again, we just, I don't think I ever really have enough information to make that judgment. And I hope I'm not dodging the bullet. But if I don't have enough information or I can't trust the information I have, it, it becomes very hard to make that decision. So I honor any and all of you that have served in the services. I honor any and all of you that have defended our nation. Uh, I'm happy that you did it. I'm thankful that you did it. And I'm thankful that I never had to make those choices. And maybe that's being a little selfish. It's just the way it is. I was in college when the draft... Remember that lottery? Those, some of you are old enough to remember the lottery. I sat in my bedroom by myself. And I held my breath for about two hours. And then they finally got to me. And I was number 314. So I said, okay, back to school. Nothing to worry about. But I know good friends that got low numbers and they served. Some of you served. And it changes you forever. War is terrible. But hopefully in the majority of times it is a form of self-defense and therefore appropriate. I'm going to stop there and see if anybody has a comment or a question on the right to bear arms, self-defense, or the right to go to war. We've got Darrell way toward the back there, uh, Jason. And if I've offended anybody by what I said, come see me, because that wasn't my intent. John, uh, there in Exodus 22, yeah. the uh, third verse, would you, would you comment on the last part of that? We, we studied that oh, a couple of weeks ago, and we, we kind of struggled with it. It's worth the uh, sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed, but the Nick says he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for the, his theft. Is that What theft is that referring to? Okay, let me get the context here, Darrell. Verse 1, if a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it and sell it, he should restore five times. If a thief is found breaking in and, and be smitten that he die, there, there shall be no blood shed for him. In other words, that's okay. You can kill a thief. If the sun be risen upon him... There shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. I guess I tie that a little bit more back to verse 1 than I do verse 2. And I don't hope that's not taking out of context. But if you steal something, you're to make restitution for it. 
And back then, if you don't have if if you don't have anything to to give back, then there seems to be a, a selling of that person to generate funds to, to 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 be a restitution. What was your conclusion, or did you reach one? Well, it just it just followed right after the sun has risen on him. There shall be guilt for his bloodshed. I, that's I just couldn't see how that tied together. It apparently does go back to the first verse. That's my best take on it. Okay. There, there's a side issue here, which I told someone I wasn't going to get into, but I'll touch on it since it's here. This idea of being sold for restitution brings up the whole idea of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, do we have the right to freedom? It's, we're told we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do we have the right to freedom? Uh, I think that's a tremendous privilege. That's what I think freedom is. It's a tremendous privilege. But if we lived in a country where we weren't free, we could still be Christians. And we still ought to be Christians. Back then, there were slaves. Slavery back then tended not to be a racial thing. It tended to be a national thing. Just like racism is a fairly new thing. Racism probably in the last few hundred years. Back in the Bible, it was nationalism. Uh, Jonah was probably prejudiced toward the Ninevites. But that wasn't a racial thing. That was a, a national prejudice. So racism is, is a bad thing. It's a wrong thing, but it's a fairly new thing. Where are we at, Toms? Hey, John. Yeah, Tom Amos Murray Road. You kind of alluded to maybe you could one could decide whether it's a just war or not. And, uh, and then there's, But there's the thought process of obeying the laws of the land and, uh, you know, and the draft dodgers. Do you think there's a conflict there, or how do you think... How do you think one should uh, proceed on that? Prayerfully. That's how I think you should proceed on that, very prayerfully. Uh, yeah, there can be a conflict there because sometimes the laws of God and the laws of man are in conflict. And when that's true, and if we're convicted of that, we have to go by what we believe God wants and not by what man wants. Uh, and when I was growing up, because of the Vietnam War, I, many people I knew went, not many, Several that I knew went to Canada to avoid the draft. Others served. What would I have done? I probably would have served. But I would have uh, probably not enjoyed it. But I probably, I probably would have served. But if a person is truly convicted in their hearts that it's a conflict between what God wants them to do and what man wants them to do, you go with God every single time. Whether it's that issue or any other issue. Anybody else? Terry, and then maybe I'll do a couple other things. If I may, John, uh, clarify your earlier comment with regard that you can decline to go to war. If you join the military in peacetime and then war breaks out and you're ordered to go, you cannot decline that order. It is a commandment. So you will. Without you being court martialed? Correct. So um, there are, is such a thing, though, as an unlawful order, whereas like some were accused during Vietnam times of killing women and children, that would be an unlawful order. But if it's a valid order, it is essentially a commandment, and you have to follow through on that. You have to follow through it or suffer severe consequences. That is correct. Okay, thank you. And Terry knows of what he speaks because it's been his career. Not war, but the military. Okay. 
There's an interesting verse in Proverbs 31 and 9 that I think might be interesting. I guess I think it's worth taking just a quick look at. We always think of Proverbs 31 as the virtuous woman, which it is, but just before we get to the virtuous woman, in, in verse 9 of Proverbs 31, it says, this is the King James, Open thy mouth, not pardon, yeah, open thy mouth, judge rightly, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Probably a more literal translation of that is defend the rights of the poor and needy. And some of your translations may render it that way. King James says, plead the cause. But it does infer to me that the poor have rights. And there's an implication here of, of pleading that cause or defending those rights. So this may be rights of ownership. It may be rights of, uh, of benevolence if they're really needy. But... It, it did appear to me to be a passage that clearly indicated that at least uh, Solomon and the Holy Spirit, as they were writing here, indicated that people have rights. So I, I pass it along to you. I want to spend just a few minutes on, I've talked about rights versus privilege, and, and I, may have, I may have gotten more semantical there than, than I should have, and maybe there's not that big of a difference. But I'd like to consider for a moment or just ask the question, is church membership a right or a privilege? Church membership. I'm not, and I'm, I mean by that, well, I could mean the church universal, but I'm really thinking about the local congregations. Is that a right or is that a privilege? Well, I consider it to be a privilege. I consider it to be a privilege. Uh, I find that that's the right attitude uh, at least for me, uh, in my approach to church membership. Now, we understand there's the, there's the church used in the scriptures for the church universal. Well, God adds to that. I have nothing to say about that, and neither do you. God sees our hearts. God knows who's in the church. One of the comments or questions I had during the break had to do with the name, Church of Christ. Is that the right name? Or The question really was, why do we use the name Church of Christ? Well, my answer was we use it, number one, because it's a biblical name, and we use it, number two, because it's the name that our nation has customarily used so people understand what's kind of meant by that. There are other biblical names, the Church of God, Church of the Firstborn. When people ask me, for instance, do you have to be a member of the Church of Christ in order to be saved, my answer is you have to be a member of Christ's Church in order to be saved. And we're saved as individuals, not as congregations. But for me, my membership in my local congregation is a privilege, not a right. My conduct could cause my membership to be revoked. My conduct could also cause the Lord to revoke my membership in the church universal. So it's not an inalienable right. Along that line, I don't think a congregation has to automatically accept everybody that wants to be a member of their congregation. I think that's eldership and congregational discernment. We want everybody that wants to be a member to be a member. We all are welcome, but people who maybe don't share our basic doctrinal understanding, it would not be appropriate. So I consider that to be a privilege that can be revoked. Uh, either by God in the church universal or even by our leadership in the local congregation. But having said that, I think God wants us all to be both members of the church universal and working members of a local congregation. He wants us all to be under the authority and the leadership of 
godly men, if at all possible. And I can't come up with a real good reason why someone would not want to be. Why would we not want the wonderful fellowship? Why would we not want all of the privilege and wonder that, that comes from it? But I don't think we ought to think of it as a right, because I think it's more appropriately thought of as a, uh, as a privilege. Anybody want to make a comment on church membership? Uh, I touched on that very briefly, but the clock is telling me to. Just a minute, we'll get a mic. Yes, I understand that there's litigation now against the church about people joining the church. Uh, we have some of, of immoral attitudes that join the church and they're suing to belong. Well, I, I'm not personally aware of that, but I, I believe you. I believe you, but... Well, they don't let it out. That, don't publish it. That to me would be we've got to do what the Lord says and not what uh, man says. Uh, there will be, and there have been, but not. fortunately there haven't been a great number of them, the lawsuits against church discipline uh, under the heading of slander or liability or libelness. Uh, it's caused a lot of congregations, some represented here, to take out liability insurance and counseling insurance. I don't know whether your congregation does. That's totally up to you. Um, but I know several congregations, along with their insurance policies for the building, also have insurance coverage for their their officers, at least, if not their members. Uh, I've never personally seen a lawsuit over that, but it'll happen. It will happen. So use your own judgment there. Anybody else have a comment or question on the right or privilege of church membership? Okay, let me talk just a little bit then about the right to liberty. And I touched on it just a little bit uh, with Darrell's question. Does a Christian have the right to be free? Well... We certainly want to be free, uh, and this is one of our one of the freer countries. I don't know if it's the most free country, but it's one of the freer countries. But one of the difficulties with with this idea is we we commonly equate freedom almost in a racial sense, and it, it's not really a racial sense, at least throughout the eons of time. Uh, slavery, for instance, was mostly a national issue until the last few hundred years in America. It became somewhat synonymous with it, with a racial issue, but I hope we can all agree that any form of prejudice and racism is absolutely wrong. I can remember sitting as a young man in classes and, and hearing little hints that, well, it's justified in the Bible because of Noah's sons and, and the curse on Canaan. Well, a couple of comments I'll make on that. If you go back and read it, I, I don't see anywhere where God cursed Canaan. I see where Noah did. But I don't see where God did. God may have, but if he did, it was not a racial issue. Uh, in Joshua chapter 9, verse 23, the Gibeonites were to serve. But that's not a racial issue at all because they were, they were Arabic just like the Jews were. Uh, in Nehemiah chapters 9, 10, I'm probably Nehemiah 13, Ezra chapter 9 and 10, 
they, they were to give up their wives. But that was a spiritual issue. That wasn't a racial issue in any way, shape, or form. When you move to the New Testament, Jesus totally does away with that concept. Story of the Good Samaritan. Who was the righteous one there? It was the Samaritan, not the Jew. Uh, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. When you go to Luke chapter 17, one leper came back and thanked God, thanked Jesus for healing him. He was a Samaritan. I just, it's almost as if he goes out of his way to point out the silliness of this concept. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 20, 28, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Well, obviously there's still men and women. Obviously there's still Jews or Gentiles, but God is no respecter of persons. And I'm not saying this because I think I have to convince you, but it just doesn't really matter to God. And I can be a, I can be a Christian as a free man. I can be a Christian in prison. I can be a Christian as a slave. My choice is I want to be a Christian as a free man. But in the end of things, it really doesn't matter because this life is so short. And I hope Tom doesn't mind me sharing this, and I don't think he will. He and I had a very brief conversation just a minute ago. Is it okay? And I said, Tom, don't take this wrong, but a little part of me envies you. And he knew exactly what I meant. I said, what, the little part that envies you is not that I want to go through the discomfort, but I can sense it's so much easier for you to focus on what's important than it is for the rest of us sometimes to focus on what's important. And please don't take that wrong. Take it the way I mean it. We ought to all feel the imminence of the end because it, it's just like that. And we, know, we intellectually know that, but just watching him or others... There's, there's that closeness to God. There's, there's, the songs mean more. The verses mean more. And kind of shame on me that, they, that maybe they don't. But there's that, there's that imminence of the things you and I worry about really don't matter. Many of the things, let me rephrase that. Many of the things that you and I worry about don't matter. When I was 25, I had a list of eight important things. I'm 64, I've got a list of two. And I'm not saying I was wrong at 24, but I think I'm more right at 64, because things work out. You know, I used to think losing your job, oh man. Well, things work out. You know, things work out. Some of you have lost lots, many more things than your jobs, many more touching things than your jobs, but it all works out, as long as we're in God's family. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I can continue to go, but I want to pause and give you a chance for any comments or questions over anything that we've touched on in the last hour and 45 minutes or anything that is germane to this topic that I haven't touched on that you'd like to have some discussion. Tom? I was wondering, John, if you could make some comparisons to the idea of the Founding Fathers and why they're talking about rights and how that can apply spiritually that... In religion, there are things, there are doctrines, practices that keep us from exercising rights that God gave us that we should be exercising. I wondered if you might make some comments on those things. Okay, I'm not probably the best historian. I think the founding fathers largely were a reaction to some of the oppression, obviously, that they had felt they had had in Europe 
And so they were extolling those rights. If you're asking me about rights we have as American citizens that we probably should be using and are neglecting, probably I would put at the head of that list freedom of speech. We don't speak out and share the gospel like we ought to. And I think Steve yesterday made a comment. I, I can't remember how he followed it up because I was trying to, I was also thinking about this lesson, to be honest with you. But about, you know, let's get serious about this. Let's get serious about it. And probably the ability to speak out without any serious injury is one that we probably don't take advantage of as we should. Our prohibition about freedom of speech is fear, not the government in general. Fear of rejection, fear of not sharing it. But when you've had the opportunity to participate a little bit in somebody's coming to the Lord, it's, you want to have a high, do that. You want to have a high, that you do that. You watch someone go down into the waters of baptism that you've been privileged to have a small measure in it. That's the high. It's not coke, it's not marijuana, it's not alcohol. That's the high. So that would probably be the one I would think of first. Do you have one that... in the church how uh, every Christian is a priest and should be allowed to develop their abilities and use the things they have whereas some religions make it uh, they cut out okay. a lot of the potential there yeah. okay well if I understand that that would be a, a crowning vote for mutual ministry everybody not only has the right to participate but has the has the right to grow I had two or three comments, and, and I'll, I won't remember them all, where people came up and pointed out things about things I, I'm I remember Bill's, and I'm going to figure out how to say this one, Bill. He edified me. He saw an angle to that passage in, in, in Matthew 5 that I hadn't seen, that I, I really never thought about. And his comment, his comment was that if you get slapped with the left hand, which is where you'd do it this way. The left hand was used for an unclean, unclean activity. And if you want more on that, see Bill. But it was the ultimate insult. It wasn't just the backhandedness. of the, It was also the uncleanliness of that hand. So he was, he was reinforcing my idea of it being an insult. But my, my example is, that was a case of mutual ministry. He edified me. I'd never thought of that. I'll probably never forget it. And I may never repeat it. But I, it's in my head, and I thought it was a good thought. So, yeah, that's a tremendous advantage we have that probably we... Mutual ministry is a tremendous advantage that we have if we do it right that, that we don't appreciate. Because it takes work. But boy, the benefits of that are astronomical. It makes a stronger group. It makes growth. When do you grow? It's when you're studying for a class. It's when you're studying for a lesson. We're all, we are all kind of built that way. And it's a, it's a tremendous advantage. It's a little scary to people that aren't used to it. We need to be patient with everybody. But it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. He said it's also a good example of with rights come responsibility. And I think it was Dave Mundy that was talking about his kids. You know, they wanted to drive down here, and he had to remind them that there are curves in the road down here, and they don't have any curves in, in Illinois. 
with that comes responsibility. You can all, many of you can remember the first time your child took off with the car by themselves. How many times did you say, be careful, responsible, etc., etc.? And that was the right thing to do. The right thing to do. With it comes responsibility. We tend to want rights without responsibility. Well, that's great work if you can get it, but I've never found it. Fred? Uh, just one comment, I guess, concerning uh, the possibility of litigation. Uh, we know, you know, those things can happen. I think this ties in well with the idea of what rights we have. Uh, you know, we have the rights to protect ourselves. That could mean that we want to make sure we are incorporated. That could mean that we have insurance, that we do those things to prepare for those type of things. But ultimately, right now, in our legal system, things could change, but the worst thing that could happen is they could take away our tax-exempt status. Well, okay, so what? You know, it's not that big a deal. So right now, there's limitations on how much that can really hurt us. That doesn't mean that won't change in the future, but with what rights we have now, we can protect ourselves as far as we can. We should still always do those things that we know are right. Okay, thank you. I want to comment just briefly on, on the last one in, in that opening statement. We have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our Constitution says we have the right to be happy, or at least try to be happy. I'm not sure I agree with that as a Christian. I want all Christians to be happy, but I, I, my, my uncomfortability is that should not be a real goal for me. My goal is to serve the Lord. I believe happiness is not a goal for a Christian. Happiness should be a natural result of a Christian. If you're a Christian and you're living as God wants you to do, I think that will promote happiness. But if I go out and happiness is my goal, I'll probably end up with a short-term seasonal type of happiness. And God, I don't think, has promised that I will be happy. He knows that if I do what he says, happiness can come into my life. But if I'm not happy and saved, that's fine. Because I'll have a lot of happiness after I've left this earth. I am happy, and I think most of you are happy, and that's a more pleasurable way to live. But there are things that come into our life that don't make us happy. How can you lose a loved one and be happy about it? Well, you shouldn't be happy about it. That's a hard thing. How can you have an illness and be happy about the illness? Well, you probably shouldn't, because that's not a pleasurable thing. But when our eyes are focused on heaven, everything is transfigured. Everything is transfigured. So happiness to me is, is not a right as a Christian. Happiness to me is the result of being a Christian. Who we got? Terry? Charles Fry once said that he would re rewrite that to say life, liberty, and the pursuit of righteousness. Okay, I like that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of right. Go ahead. Were you done? Okay, that's good. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of righteousness. You know, it's, it's like what Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three: Seek ye all first the kingdom of God, and these other things are going to come. These other things are going to come. Not with total oblivion to reality, but they will come. Yeah, okay, we got... Where are we at? I'm sorry. Okay, Bill? I, I think... It, it really in the phrase itself it kind of defines itself as not a right because it says we have the right to pursue happiness not obtain that's right happiness. 
So it's not a guarantee to happiness in any way, shape, or form, but rather you have the ability to do the things that would make you happy. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. As a Christian, I kind of view it as I'm, I need to view the, I need to pursue the things that will make me righteous, which will then give me happiness. Which is kind of taking your comment and, and Terry's uh, quote together. I don't think it's wrong to pursue happiness, but that shouldn't be a consuming pursuit of happiness. Otherwise, we spend our lives in the in the amusement park. Uh, Randy, I just uh, nice and loud. Um, a, a quick clarification. Um, the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is Jefferson's words from the Declaration of Independence and what the goal was going to be when we establish our country. Uh, the Constitution doesn't guarantee us the right to pursue happiness. The Constitution is actually the nuts and bolts of the structure of the government. The amendments were added because the southern people said, hey, wait a minute, you guys are overstepping your bounds, and so we're not going to do this. So Jefferson's ideas and the Declaration of Independence are great and are the basis for the Constitution. But the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness are in there. The Bill of Rights was added to allow citizens to have some guarantees against the government. And the other thing I'd like to add is, you know, 1 Corinthians 8 talks about Paul telling us we have a right to do certain things, but if it overbounds my neighbor and it causes him to stumble, then I need to restrict my liberty and say, okay, Absolutely. I can't be doing that. Absolutely. Thank you. That was a whole section that I had if we'd have had time, but I knew we probably wouldn't. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 that he refers to talks about how we as Christians, when it's not a doctrinal issue, ought to be more than willing to uh, subdue our rights and privileges for the benefit of other brothers and sisters. And we should not insist upon our rights when it's not a doctrinal issue that's going to cause somebody else to stumble. Absolutely. One more comment, and then they're coming back. I think that uh, <clears throat> misunderstanding may go back to what did they mean hap by happiness. I don't think the Founding Fathers thought everybody should pursue pleasure. I think they meant happiness in the correct use of the word. It's a state of being. It's where you're at. And rather than letting the government decide what will make you happy or where you're when you're in the right position, let the citizens decide what's what's happiness, what what course they should pursue, and that's why, like uh, John pointed out on Monday, the founding fathers also knew this wouldn't work for everybody, because most people would rather interpret it to be, I can do whatever I want, so they knew that it would only work with responsible people. Let the people who are responsible. Let, let the people who are governed by God decide what is in their best interest rather than the government deciding. So I think that it, they, if that's what they meant, I think that, that that was a good thing. But yeah, whether or not it's a right from God, I, I think God would rather that we decide what, what was happiness. Okay, classes are coming back. So thank you. Anybody that wants to visit more, I'll be here for two more days.